Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. We are here not to hear that stuff tonight. We want to hear Dr. Anju. Uh, just a quick background on her. Uh, some of you all have seen her. You've been on webinars with her. Um, she is a, you know, yes, I'm totally cheating looking at my left screen. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> it's not memorized word for word. Uh, graduate from University of Michigan Dental School. Um, you've been a dentist for over 20 years and diplomat in the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine um, and American Sleep and Breathing Academy. Because yeah. why get one when you can have two? <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Uh, member of the American Dental Association and Michigan Dental Association. Um, you have a huge passion for screening people, not just treating, not just making a living at this and helping people, but truly a heart for screening. And I got to say, I'm really excited to have you here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I, do, I do think screening is probably the most important thing because I don't think that, you know, I don't think, you know, implementing a dental sleep practice is for everybody, you know, and I think that even if you aren't implementing treating these people in your practice, but you can at least know the warning signs and the symptoms and get these, get these patients of yours in the hands of somebody that can help them or know where to refer them, you're doing a great service for your patients. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, listen, I, these guys know the deal. I'm going to interrupt you with their questions. Uh, it's not to break your train of thought. So when I pop in, I'll ask you some of those. So y'all put your questions, y'all, there you go. Put your questions in the Q and a, please. We're here to answer you. Um, but Dr. Anju, I'll get out of your way here uh, until <laughs> I hop back in. You can never be in the way. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So tonight we're going to talk about screening for sleep apnea in, in the dental practice. And, you know, what is the actual role of the dentist? Um, and a lot of you might be thinking, you know, oh, is this something that I should do or something I shouldn't do? And to be quite frank, you know, the American Dental Association put out a policy statement back in 2017 that basically said that all dentists should be screening for airway disorders. So this is something that's really not like an if, um, if we should do it, it really is that um, it's our responsibility to do it um, for our patients. And like I said, not everybody needs to be, um, you know, making oral appliances for these patients, but screening your patients, knowing the right questions to ask, um, knowing what to look for clinically, knowing what type of questionnaires you can use, um, all those types of things are um, what I'm hoping to kind of impart some um, knowledge to you guys tonight. So a little bit about me first. Um, I know Michael went over my uh, professional credentials, um, but I just wanted to tell you um, a little bit about me personally. Um, uh, this is a picture of my family in the middle here. So that's my husband and my two girls. Um, my husband actually does suffer from sleep apnea as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily where my passion came from for this, but incidentally, um, you know, we tested him once I had the knowledge behind me, we tested him and he actually did have sleep apnea. Um, and, you know, when I think about it, you know, he was that person that would come home from work all the time. He'd come home from work and he'd take a nap on the couch and um, always had that, you know, daytime sleepiness. 
but never really acknowledged it for being more than, you know what, I had a long day at work and I'm ready to take a nap. Um, but, you know, I haven't seen him take a nap after work in many years since he's been treated. So his quality of life has definitely improved because of me. <laughs> um, and he'll live longer because of it, which is fantastic. So um, this is a picture I, on the far left here, my, just my cute little dogs, um, Clint and Ollie. And on the far right here, um, this top right hand picture is a picture of uh, my mom and my dad. And um, this is where my passion comes from. And I'll tell you how I got started. You know, probably, actually it's 10 plus years ago now. Um, I took a class um, that was just, you know, it was a one day class put on um, in, in where I live um, in Novi, Michigan. It was at, you know, a, a conference room in a hotel and it was a one day class on snoring and sleep apnea. And I thought, you know, I don't know a lot about this. I'm gonna go. So I signed up, went to the class and um, heard uh, uh, Dr. John Tucker actually at the time was the one that first spoke and was explaining what sleep apnea was and you know what the difference was between snoring and sleep apnea. And I'll never forget because he played a video at that seminar, a video of a man having sleep apnea. And in that video, you could see this gentleman struggling. Um, but, you know, I, I think of it now when I say struggling, but when I think of it then, when I saw it, I just kept thinking, wow, that looks exactly like what my dad went through every single day. And, you know, he, he'd be snoring and then the snoring would stop. And he'd choke and he'd gasp. And you could see this, like, almost like this reciprocal action between his chest and his thorax. And um, now we understand that that's a way that he was actually trying, his body was trying to find a way to breathe. And that was his fight for his breath. But at the time I just thought, wow, you just snore so badly, you know, and so loudly and so badly. And, you know, we just would do anything to get away from him. But I was pretty much just brought to tears because I realized at that point that my dad had sleep apnea and, you know, I lost my dad when I was 16 years old and my dad was only 54. So, you know, he was definitely taken away from us way too soon. Um, and, you know, he died from a cerebral aneurysm and um, this was undoubtedly uh, related to having sleep apnea and that constant, um, you know, disruption of his sympathetic nervous system and constantly being in fight or flight when he was sleeping or was supposed to be sleeping. Um, my dad also has three brothers that have all had strokes. And um, it's, I just, you know, this is, this is in front of me and this has become my, my life work. And so, um, like I said, I think it's really important to be able to screen, to know what to look for. Um, and, and I think, you know, to start at the basics really, which is, you know, what is the difference between snoring and sleep apnea if you don't know? So, you know, snoring, basically the etiology of snoring and sleep apnea are, are somewhat the same, or they, they really are the same. You know, in a patient who's sleeping, who has a normal healthy airway, they're sleeping, but the airway is able to stay open. And in a patient that snores, they go to sleep, but, and they have, because they have some crowding at the back of the airway, and that crowding can be either from 
you know, a large tongue, um, tonsil, tonsillar tissue, um, a low-lying soft palate, um, anything that's going to crowd that back of the airway. And um, that area, because it's crowded, when the airflow goes through the airway, there's some sound created, and that's the vibration of that tissue, and that's what creates snoring. When we have sleep apnea, there's so much crowding of the airway that the airway actually closes off. Okay, so we have either partial or complete blockage of that of that upper airway um, that disrupts normal ventilation during sleep. And that's what sleep apnea is. And the effects of sleep apnea, the consequences of, on the body of sleep apnea are immense. And we're, and we're gonna get into that. Everyone with me so far? You took the words out of my mouth because I was gonna ask you if you'd give us some definitions of that. I love how you said the etiology is the same. Yeah, I mean, the etiology is definitely the same. It's it it yeah. you can have snoring or sleep apnea from a crowded airway. Yeah. So and, and we don't know if our patient just snores unless we do a sleep study. So there's there's no way of knowing, but I can give you things to look at clinically, uh, and I can go over some questionnaires with you, things that can help point you in the right direction. Um, in terms of making making at least a you know a um, a guess as to whether you think that patient would test positive or not. So you know I got started like I said at that first class where I realized that this had very personally affected my own life, and um, at that point I said you know what I'm going to get involved in in this, and I took some other classes. I took um, some other training, some uh, sleep residencies through sleep group solutions, through Nearman practice management, um, through uh, uh, Ben Pat Institute. I've taken some uh, different trainings and have learned from a bunch of uh, uh, many different mentors. And now I hope that I can um, be a mentor to some of you. So, and I've been doing this now for uh, over 10 years. My practice currently is about 40% sleep and 60% general dentistry. So I can tell you, I get much more happy and I have some staff on this call and they all, they, uh, they all definitely know that I'm, I'm much more happy doing dental sleep than I am doing general dentistry. Um, it's definitely my passion. It's, it's easier physically um, on the body and it's just, it's just, I definitely enjoy it. I like the thinking and the problem solving and the the physician interaction and I just think it's uh, it suits me so I'm happy with what I'm doing. Okay, so when you screen your patients, it's not just you as the dentist that is screening your patients. Um, it is pretty much your whole team, and I say the whole team because. You know, the front desk, they need to be able to answer phone calls, field phone calls. Um, when a patient calls, they need to be able to talk to them about, you know, whether they've worn a CPAP before, whether they have a sleep study. So the, the whole team needs to be educated. Um, the screening is going to actually start mostly in the hygiene room. So actually, today was a really great day because one of my hygienists, Jessica, said to me, she goes, I've had a lot of sleep conversations in this room today. And I thought, you know what, that's great because I hear it, but the fact that they're recognizing that themselves, that they're actually, um, that they have all this extra knowledge as well, and that they they realize that it's at the forefront of their conversations. It's not just about, you know, home care and brushing and flossing. 
You know, it's about, you know what, like, and, and not just taking like a picture of say like a broken down amalgam of a tooth that might need a crown. It's taking pictures of maybe an airway shot where they say, you know what, look, look, Mr. And Mrs. Jones, look how large your uvula is, you know, or, you know, see these scalloping marks on the side of your tongue. Um, it, or they, they've asked the questions by the time I've actually gone into the operatory, um, which makes that flow um, during the, the dental exam that much easier. Okay. Um, one thing I do want to make very, very clear is that dentists do not diagnose sleep apnea. Okay. Um, that is not within the scope of our dental license. And we um, screen for sleep apnea. Okay. So we have the ability to recognize the signs and symptoms and get that patient a sleep study. Okay. After they get the sleep study, the board certified sleep physician is the one that actually makes the diagnosis. So you're going to learn to basically work as a, a team. So, you know, wherever you live, you're going to find sleep physicians in your area. You'll find cardiologists, ENT doctors, pulmonologists, um, all these different specialties of physicians that will work with you because they need you as much as you need them. Um, and so, you know, they're going to be looking for the professional in their area as well. Somebody that um, is well-educated in dental sleep medicine, has the credentials, um, and is able to manage, manage, help manage their patients. Okay. Okay. Um, so when we're screening our patients, there are certain forms that we can use. Um, two of the um, more uh, widely recognized forms, one is the um, stop bank form is the, and the other one is the Epworth. And both of these forms are um, literature validated. Um, there's, you know, plenty, plenty of literature out there looking at the forms and their validity. Um, and then, you know, so we have screening forms we can use. And then, you know, I kind of, the, the, the seminar tonight or the webinar tonight was like, what are the top three things I can use, you know, to screen 82% of our patients? And I mean, that 82%, you can throw that back to Chad and Michael. I don't know where they got that number from, but I, I took that as, okay, what are the three big things? Uh, <laughs> and so screening forms, one, related medical history two, and the clinical exam three. So those are the three pieces of um, information that you should be looking at, connecting the dots, and coming up with um, you know, your, your estimation as to whether that patient may be suffering from sleep apnea. Okay. So screening questionnaires. Um, this is the upward sleepiness scale. So the upward sleepiness scale um, is used to measure the amount of sleepiness your patient might have given a certain situation. So they go through situations like sitting and reading, you know, zero would be no chance of falling asleep. Three would be a high chance of falling asleep. They go through watching TV, sitting inactive in a public place, lying down to rest in the afternoon, sitting talking to someone, sitting quietly after lunch without alcohol, as a passenger in a car, or in a car stopped in traffic. And um, they, you, you basically come up with a score, you total the number. If you score 11 or higher, that is deemed to have excessive daytime sleepiness. And I, I'm gonna say that, but then I'm gonna have you take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because people don't really know they're tired until they're not tired. So they're gonna score, you know, maybe they're gonna score a total of five and they still have daytime sleepiness, but they won't really know it until they're not sleeping. That's my experience. Okay. Um, so again, zero to 10 is considered a normal range of sleepiness. 11 to 14 is mild sleepiness. 
15 to 17 is moderate sleepiness, and 18 to 24 is severe sleepiness. Okay, the stop bang questionnaire. Um, this is another one that's very useful. The S, the stop, the acronym, the S stands for snore, T stands for tired, O is for observed, um, observed apnea, and P is for having high blood pressure. So a lot of, a lot of times you, you can even just think of this mentally just as the stop part of this. Um, and then the bang is, do they have a BMI greater than 35? Um, are they older than 50? Okay, so as we get older, we're gonna be um, more prone to having sleep apnea simply because we start to lose muscle tone as we get older. So like just as we lose tone in our biceps and triceps, we're gonna lose tone in our, in our airway muscles as well. Um, neck circumference. Um, so anything that is going to, whether it's fat or muscle, if they have a big thick neck, um, you know what, it, the numbers are greater than 16 for a female or greater than 17 for a male, they're gonna be considered at risk for sleep apnea. So anything that's gonna put any extra luminal pressure on that airway and make that airway smaller um, is gonna put that patient at risk, okay? And then G is for gender. Males are more um, susceptible to having sleep apnea. Um, so the incidence is three to one, male to female, but after menopause, that incidence is one-to-one. -one. Okay, um, and then, you know, when we're talking about, you know, on the previous slide here, we had the O for an observed um, cessation of breath during sleep. So if anybody, has anybody observed you stop sleeping? So usually, you know, what we find is the person that's, you know, bringing the patient to the appointment for the sleep, um, you know, to have your sleep evaluated is, is often the bed partner. Because let's face it, you know what? It's the bed partner that's suffering mostly when that person is snoring, right? So the person that's snoring doesn't realize the effect it's having on their heart, their blood pressure, their brain. They don't understand, you know, how um, this sleep fragmentation is actually hurting them. But what they, what they do know in their household is that their spouse is yelling at them or whacking them, um, or they wake up with bruises on one arm because they are not getting a good night's sleep because their spouse is snoring. So the bed partner report, you know, it doesn't have to be anything real official, but being able to talk to the bed partner at that visit um, is really helpful. You know, a lot of times, you know, we've had some situations where it just makes us laugh, laugh because the wife will come in with the husband for the appointment and we'll try to have a conversation with the husband, but it's almost like he's not allowed to say anything. Like the, the, the wife just talks over him the entire time. They answer all the questions and they don't care how much it costs. They're doing it. So we see that we see that a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the other thing we want to look at, um, other than you know, the amount of sleepiness the patient has, um, of course, we want to ask them if they snore. So let's not forget that. Okay. So the most three most common uh, presenting symptoms of sleep apnea are excessive daytime sleepiness, snoring, and high blood pressure. Um, so we definitely want to know if the patient's snoring. And one thing that we do. Um, on our screening forms is simply on your medical histories that you have in your dental practice. If you modify your uh, medical history, we just added two questions or two boxes. One, we added snoring where it has a list of everything else that they could possibly have. We added snoring, we added sleep apnea. And then we added another question that just says, if you have been diagnosed with sleep apnea, um, do you have a CPAP machine? Yes or no. And are you wearing it? Yes or no. So just by having these points on the um, medical history, when the patient walks in, they're already thinking about this because this is part of your medical history intake. 
um, even, and I'm talking about just a general patient that's there for their dental, dental, uh, dental checkup. Okay, so this is already on your radar that you're going to be talking to them potentially about snoring, sleep apnea, airway. The related medical history. So the more you do this, the more you're going to be looking at your medical histories a little bit differently. When you start to look at your medical history, you see that the patient's taking um, you know, medication for acid reflux, they're taking medication for blood pressure, they're taking medication for diabetes, um, they're possibly taking uh, multiple medications for blood pressure. Uh, these are the things that you're going to start painting this clinical picture like, hmm, all these medications, all these potential comorbidities the patient has could go along with sleep apnea. So let me take a little bit further look at their airway. Okay. So some things we're going to want to look for on the related medical history. Does the patient have acid reflux? Do they have high blood pressure? Do they have morning headaches, diabetes? Do they have any sexual dysfunction, memory problems, Alzheimer's, dementia, nocturia, um, cardiovascular disease, or stroke? And these are all things that can um, go along right hand in hand with having obstructive sleep apnea. Dr. Anju, question yeah. for you on that one. So yeah. obviously you listed a couple uh, yeah. comorbidities here that are difficult to screen in hygiene. Yeah. Uh, or you know, it opens up like a can of worms. I mean, how deep do you want to go on their cardiovascular disease? Your hygiene team isn't going to be versed in all of that. So yeah, I, so I'm not saying that they should actually be versed in it, but I'm saying that you know, just to recognize that, like, say, like, okay, I'm taking this medication. I'm taking Losartan. Okay. Yep. I'm yep. taking Losartan. You know what? That's a medication used for blood pressure. Just to be yep. able to say that, yeah, you know what? My patient is taking a blood pressure medication. Right. So, you know what? I should start asking questions about airway. Awesome. You, you answered the question before I got there. <laughs> yeah. How did they, how really did they launch at, into just it? Just looking it's, at the medications yeah. and, um, you know, or maybe you've got a patient that has you know, if they're taking a bunch of allergy medication and, you know, they have restricted nasal breathing, you know, that's something else that we're going to want to look at. So all these things that, um, you know, versus just thinking, I, th I think sometimes we think about the medications in terms of, okay, are these medications safe for me to administer dental anesthetic? And we have like this tunnel vision of, you know, why we're looking at the medications or we're looking for if they have allergies in case we prescribe something but we're not actually taking a look at the medical history and the medications um, to look at the overall health of the patient as we really should be. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Um, so OSA prevalence among medical conditions. Um, if we have hypertension, we have a 30% chance of having um, OSA. Okay. And OSA, I'm talking obstructive sleep apnea. If we have drug-resistant hypertension, which is taking two or more medications for high blood pressure, we have an 83% chance of having sleep apnea. And we can go down this list and we can see, you know, a lot of these are, um, you know, cardiac-related diseases, which is why cardiologists can actually be a very, very good referral source um, to the dentist um, for patients. Because, you know, one, one thing I have seen is that cardiologists are actually pretty good in terms of following up with the patient to see if that patient is wearing a CPAP machine. Um, and we didn't really get into like, what are the treatment options for sleep apnea? But you know, for sleep apnea, for most physicians, the first line of treatment is a CPAP machine, which basically is a machine, it's what the patients uh, term the mask. And it's actually what prevents a lot of patients from even going to get a sleep study 
because they're afraid if they get a sleep study and they test positive for sleep apnea, they're, they're going to be married to this to this mask the rest of their life. So, um, you know, if, if the patient um, can't wear a CPAP, you know, we want to be able to educate these patients that there are alternatives. And if the patient doesn't want to wear a CPAP, that they can try this as a first-line therapy. Um, but cardiologists, as I was getting back to, cardiologists are actually one of the better um, professions I have found that actually follow up with their patient, um, especially if they've got a patient who's got atrial fibrillation, and we know that there's a 49% chance of having sleep apnea, and say that patient does have sleep apnea, that cardiologist wants to make sure that their patient is wearing their CPAP machine so that their AFib stays in check. So, you know, like I said, a lot of these co um, medical conditions are cardiovascular in nature. Um, and so working with cardiologists can, can be really good. Okay, so we can go down the list here, but we see, you know, we've got type 2 diabetes, 48%. Um, the one I want to point you to is stroke, which is 92% chance of having sleep apnea. Okay, um, acid reflux is at the bottom of that list, 60%. Um, and this is something that, you know, we can see uh, when we're screening our patients for sleep apnea in the dental chair. A lot of these patients, what are you going to see on their tongues if they have sleep apnea? Right, so as dentists, we see that they might have that coating on their tongue, right? And a lot of these patients that have coated tongues, that's actually a buildup of acid coming from the stomach. And so that's when we can start, you know, talking to our patients more, okay? I mean, if it's something where they just need to brush their tongue and it comes off, that's different. But if it's actually a coating and a staining on there, this is more than likely acid reflux and it's related to sleep apnea. Okay, so the clinical exam, okay? What are we gonna look for in the clinical exam? Okay, and again, um, we can ask some questions. Um, you know, we can look, we can talk to the patient about their BMI, which is basically it's a ratio um, of weight to height, and anything greater than 35 is, is puts the patient at risk for sleep apnea. Um, if you do have a BMI chart, a lot of patients don't really want to, um, you know, unless you have a scale in your office and you're going to weigh your patients and measure your patients, which I don't think a lot of us do as dentists. Um, but one thing you can do is have a printed BMI chart. Um, and just like say to the patient, you know what, just go ahead and point to what your BMI is. And they basically find the intersection of their height and weight, point to the number, and they give it to you that way. Um, neck circumference, that's something, you know, in the hygiene room, you can measure the necks of your patients. Um, don't strangle them with the tape measures, but you can measure their necks. Um, but, you know, most male patients know their neck size because that's how they buy shirts. Um, but it's your female patients that probably aren't going to have any idea what the size of their necks are. Okay, but neck size can be a risk factor. Okay, um, so dental signs and symptoms. So these are things that we are so comfortable with as practitioners looking in the mouth and recognizing these signs and symptoms. So it's funny, you know, I teach classes um, for different education companies. And one of the questions I seem to always get in my lectures is, you know, how do you, how do you bridge this gap? How do you start to talk to your patient about sleep when you're a dentist? And I, I just want to use this slide to say, you know what, if all these things can be related to sleep apnea, how can we be uncomfortable talking to the patient about sleep? You know, it's, it, we're, we're used to seeing abstractions, we're used to um, recognizing bruxism, we, we are examining the tongue already, we're looking, we're depressing the tongue, having the patient say, uh, looking in the back of the throat, um, we're able to see if the patient has any um, you know, signs of parafunction, these, you know, these excess doses or 
um, tori. We're looking skeletally to see if that mandible is already retruded. And these are all things that can be kind of wrapped up in this um, box of like, could the patient have sleep apnea? So, you know, I think that these conversations can actually be pretty comfortable um, because they're already pretty much in our wheelhouse of things we're looking at. That makes sense. Um, so we can look at the uvula. We can see if the uvula is, you know, enlarged or elongated, if it looks reddened, if it has any of these characteristics, and that's a sign that there's some inflammation back there. And if it has if we have inflammation back there, more than likely we have vibration of the tissue back there um, from snoring. Okay, so these are these are things that we'll want to question the patient on. We can look at the tongue level of the patient. You know, so if the patient has a large tongue, they're going to have um, more propensity to have collapse of that um, tongue into the back of the airway um, and take up airway space. Um, so, you know, we can kind of look at the tongue and say, you know, does the tongue kind of lie within the occlusal surface of the teeth? Does it spill over a little bit? Does it cover the surfaces? Um, and how large is the tongue? Another way we can look at the tongue is we can look at what's called a malapati, and I'm going to get there in a moment. Okay, another thing is tongue scalloping. So if the tongue is really large, you're going to see the indentation of the teeth on the tongue. Okay, and basically the, you know, the tongue is just too large for its house. Um, and this is also another sign that the patient could possibly have bruxism. Okay, so if the patient's airway is closing off, Okay, and if we move the lower jaw forward, okay, if we move the lower jaw forward, we can get the tongue out of the way of the airway. So the tongue pushes forward against the teeth, gets the teeth marks from scalloping, um, and we also see signs of bruxism because they have that protrusive movement. Okay, tongue scalloping is shown to have an 89% positive predictive value of having sleep apnea. So that's pretty high. Okay, um, tonsillar grading, you know, we can look at the um, tonsils, if they've had their tonsils removed, um, or if they look like the size of golf balls, you know, so any, you know, if they have large tonsils, that's another thing that's going to be crowding the airway. Okay, um, so these are some pictures of some large tonsils. Malampati. So if you have the patient stick their tongue all the way out, and we look to see how much of the uvula can we see in this patient. If we can see the entire uvula, they're considered a malampati one. If we can see a portion of the uvula, they're considered a malampati two. If you can see just the base of the uvula, they're considered malampati three. And if you can't see any of that um, uvula at all, they're considered malampati four. Okay, so we're going to see these higher malampatis on our male patients that have sleep apnea. So those are gonna be your malampati three, malampati four patients in the male population. Females tend to not have as high malampati scores because females, when they gain weight, they don't gain weight in the posterior one third of the tongue. So they still might have, it still might appear to have a pretty open airway um, of malampati one, malampati two, but the airway still may in fact be very um, collapsible. Okay. Um, so that's a malampati. Okay. Um, bruxism. So we're used to seeing bruxism, right? So, you know, we would see this patient and we would, what would we do in our dental practice, right? We would see this patient and we would say, you know, if we were doing 
what we were taught in dental school, we would see this patient and we would say, you know what? We need to make you a guard to protect your teeth, right? Your teeth are all worn down. You have, you know, these abstractions. We want to protect your teeth. But we want to make sure that we make these patients the correct kind of guard. If we make a regular guard for this patient, like a flat plane splint for these patients, and that patient by chance has undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, we are going to make that patient's apnea worse, okay? So we don't wanna do that. Um, so, but again, you know what? I Most of my practice is a referral-based practice for sleep. I see patients, you know what? And again, I have staff members on this call that would attest to this. We see patients all day, every day that walk in for a sleep consult who's have, they have bruxism, they have attrition, they have worn teeth like this, and they're wearing a guard. And you know what? I try to just tell them now that, you know what, that's what any good dentist would do is make you a guard. But when you're trained in airway, you, you understand the difference. And, you know, I hope that this word starts to spread amongst our um, professional community so we're not doing any harm because I know that no one intentionally wants to do harm for any of our patients, but giving them a flat plank slint and having a diagnosed sleep apnea could definitely make their apnea worse. Okay. Um, so bruxism, okay, about 8% of our adult patients um, who have sleep apnea also suffer from sleep bruxism, okay? Um, sleep bruxism is considered a sleep-related movement disorder, okay? So what happens is when we're having an apneic event and our, um, you know, our body is suffering from not having enough oxygen, our carbon, dioxid carbon dioxide levels are rising, our body has to find a way to rid itself of all that carbon dioxide. And the body goes through what's called an arousal, okay? And the arousal is a three-second change in EEG activity. It's where the, the, the brain actually wakes up, okay? And that, that way the body finds a way to breathe. During that time, right after that arousal, there's what we call a post-event clench in brooks, where the master muscles are fired and that patient clenches their teeth. Okay, and that's the relationship between bruxism and sleep apnea. Okay, so again, we're used to seeing this in our um, dental practices, but we have to start thinking about it one step further. Okay. Okay, and this is the study that was put out um, regarding that. It's the aggravation of respiratory disturbances. Um, by the use of an occlusal splint in athletic patients. And they found that 86% of bruxism episodes were associated with arousal response along with involuntary leg movements, shows that bruxism is in fact part of the arousal response. Awesome. Doc, question for you. This one came yeah. in and I, I was trying to get in there right before the bruxism part. Um, okay. Can a, a retreated lower face be corrected in any way? Can a retruded lower face? Yeah, I mean, it can be corrected with surgery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's a Where Our oral appliances aren't going to fix the. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Well, we were, what I was yeah. trying to show in that slide, Michael, was that if we have a retruded mandible, that jaw is going to be set even further back. Absolutely. Okay? Yeah. So the tongue is going to yep. be even set further back. And that's a, and that, what, another thing I want, I'm glad you brought that back up. Because that was one of the things I wanted to point out is why there can be actually a genetic component in sleep apnea. And that's because skeletally, we're, we're built like our ancestors. Right. You know, so if you have a retreated 
retruded lower jaw, chances are, you know, your son or daughter might have a retruded lower jaw. Right. Yep. No, I, we're on the same page. The question came in and directly applied just a couple slides ago. So I was trying to sneak it in there. Yeah, yeah. no problem at all. Yeah. No problem at Thank all. You. We're all, I think I'm almost done with my slides and then we can, we can do some talking here. Awesome. So, um, and tori. So we all know as dentists that, you know, when we see tori like this, um, or, or whether it's mandibular tori or buccal acidosis or, you know, um, a large palatal tori, that this is a sign of parafunction, right? Um, so these are our patients that are grinding, clenching, um, that have this deposition of bone. So two things have to happen. One, they have to have parafunction and two, they have to have the genetic predisposition to, to lay down this bone. Okay, but in patients who have, so why is this related to sleep apnea? If you think about it, you know, the tongue can't come forward, right? Because those the, the tori are in the way. So where's the tongue gonna go? The tongue doesn't have anywhere to go, but fall back, right? Fall back into the airway. Okay, um, so this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about buccalastostosis. Okay, you can see the deposition of bone here. Okay, again, another picture of the retronathia and why, you know, um, you know, OSA can run in families. Let's talk about bicuspid extraction. So, you know, historically, years and years ago, I know um, both my sisters, when they had um, braces, both of them had, you know, their bicuspids extracted. Um, and we see the orthodontists do that less and less these days, um, which is a really good thing. So if we look at our sleep apnea patients right now, um, you know, so many of our patients have had those bicuspid extractions. And what happened when we took the bicuspids out? We set everything further back. Um, so, you know, it helped in terms of, you know, arch space, which is what they were trying to do is correct the arch form. Um, but I don't think that, you know, uh, it wasn't taken into consideration at the time what it was going to do to the airway. But now that we're thinking about airway, um, you definitely see orthodontists taking out these um, bicuspids less and less often. Um, the literature, however, uh, does, is inconclusive on us. We still need more research. Okay. And then I did want to talk about some other additional screening tools. Um, when I first started, and so right now my practice is mostly referral-based, um, so I already know the patients have sleep apnea. So they're coming in, they've already had a sleep study, and they're there for treatment. But when I was first starting and I was starting screening the patients um, in the dental office, we would use um, pharyngometry to screen these patients. And pharyngometry uses um, sound wave technology to take a look at the airway and identifies the most collapsible point of the airway um, or how the smallest point of the airway rather um, and how collapsible it is. And it's able to, it shows basically a patient that might be at risk for sleep apnea. And then you can use CBCT. If you've got a comb beam, you know, you it, a lot of these comb beams have an airway module on them. Um, it can show you the um, minimum cross-sectional measurement of the airway, and you kind of have your threshold of knowing, you know, um, like if it's smaller than a certain value that it might be, show a patient that would be at risk for sleep apnea. So we do have some technology that, you know, uh, is advantageous for us to use in this field as well. Okay, so in summary, you know, you've got, when you're screening your patients, um, it's a team approach. You wanna have all your staff involved from the front desk to the hygienist, um, you know, and you want to um, use different types of questionnaires and screening forms. You wanna look at their medical history, the medications they're taking, 
You want a lot of this to happen in the hygiene room before you come in. Um, and then you do your clinical exam and you can look for the um, warning signs for the patient and um, you know, try and paint that clinical picture and connect the dots for them and get them in the hands of somebody that can give them a sleep test. And that's what I have for you today. <laughs> that was a lot. Um, was a lot. That was a lot. I tend to speak fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, please don't apologize. I mean, you laid it on tonight. There's a lot of things that we can use to screen our patients. I mean, I think that's, that's probably the overarching take home. There's a ton of intraoral signs, ton of things we can use for questionnaires. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. So one, one question uh, I can answer really quickly uh, right off the top um, for Q&A. Um, can you send the stop bang and Epworth forms after the webinar? Yes, our team already confirmed. We'll go ahead and send that out in along with the CE link so you guys can have that directly, no big deal. Um, you can Google them. Uh, I used to joke with physicians ages ago, stop bang was, the wife would say stop and then it was bang. <laughs> they would, you know, there's some, it's always the wife who's, you know, dealing with the husband snoring. That's the stereotype. Yeah, uh, and there's, other, there's other forms out there too. There's the yeah. Berlin questionnaire. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you that Epworth is one that, you know, even if, even if you don't love it, it's probably the one you need to start using because if you do start doing a lot of this in your practice and you get to the point that you are treating patients, um, the insurance companies are going to require you to have an Epworth on, on file for the patient. So that's, I mean, that's their required form. Um, I, I kind of say sometimes, you know, that you have to have that 11 or higher and it's, it doesn't mean anything to anybody except it means a lot to the insurance company. So, you know, I, that, that is a form that whether you like it or not, you need to have it if you're going to be treating patients, not necessarily for screening them, but once you start treating them, you are going to need to have that form. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so um, that goes into... Um, uh, shoot, I just lost it. There we go. That was another question. Um, you had mentioned that a lot of this is about screening, but the obvious next step from screening is testing. Um, yeah. Tina asked what your in-office protocol is for sleep studies. Are you handing them out? Are you um, referring them out to a third party? So to we, share? Yeah, do you do we don't do any diagnostic sleep testing in our practice. Okay. All of our sleep testing is done at a local sleep physician. We have a few physicians that we work with. Um, we refer them to the uh, board certified doctor. They get their study. The physician evaluates them. So, you know, at say for example, so, and I know we didn't get into this, but there's, you know, um, defining factors to define whether that patient has mild sleep apnea, moderate sleep apnea, or severe sleep apnea. If that patient has severe sleep apnea, then the, the doctor will try and get that patient to try a CPAP machine first. If that patient is mild or moderate, then the doctor will give them a choice whether they want to do CPAP or oral appliance. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and there's, um, uh, like you said, Anju, this is a lot of your patients are referred in now that are yeah. pre they're already diagnosed. They've right. either failed CPAP or that physician is referring them over for mild and moderate. I mean, guys, that's everybody's dream. <laughs> They're in our practice. They're, they're just there to get help. You know, there's not, you know, me trying to, you know, there's just, I, I mean, I think that if you follow a crack protocol and you educate them well, your conversion rate between getting them in the door for a consult 
and getting them there for treatment is going to be pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Stacy. Yes. Great content. Um, she said time well invested. So, oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. You're checking some important boxes tonight, doc. Appreciate good, it. Good, good. Um, okay. Uh, Tony, uh, Dr. Bear, uh, he said, hate to beat a dead horse, but do you charge a case fee? Uh, we charge for the appliance, but hate to nickel and dime for each item. Like every visit, um, is everything included in your appliance fee? Okay. So I can tell you how we do it. I'm not sure that's going to, how that's going to compare to other doctors, but I can tell you what we do. So we have a case fee that covers the first 120 days of treatment, okay? So I used to do 90 days. Then I kind of found out that, you know what, I, I, I might've wanted them to be in the appliance a little bit longer, or we had some adjustment appointments in there. And by the time they were ready to do their follow-up sleep test, we were past 90 days. So we, we went with 120. So they get their appliance, they get one follow-up sleep test, and they get their office visits that they need. Now we run our practice, I know a little bit differently than some other you know, practitioners across the country. You know, A lot of these appliances come with adjustment keys. We do not give patients, any of our patients, any of their keys. So any adjustments that they need, they're coming into the office, okay? Gotcha. Um, you know, for Prasomnus type devices where they are, you know, there's a different tray they can change to, and it's a little bit more easy to um, advance the device where they can't, you know, they don't have to turn this side one direction and this side the other direction. They can't mess it up. We'll give them the next tray. But anything where there's a chance of them making a mistake, they're coming into the office for an adjustment. Um, so those adjustment appointments are included. Um, and then the one follow-up sleep study is included. And then after that, after 120 days, whenever they return to the office, they're billed for an office visit. And of course, this is all medical insurance. Yeah. So I guess that... Um... That parlays perfectly. I know <laughs> billing and insurance wasn't quite the topic tonight, but we do have some questions for and it. It's not my specialty either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. What so, so... <laughs> Marg uh, Marguerite asked, um, do they ask about insurance coverage and how do you deal with that? I'll actually translate that just a tad because you said I'm not the expert at this. Was there a time that you did fee for service and then moved to medical insurance? Or did you just, no. did you jump into medical insurance right out of the gate? We did medical insurance right out the gate. Okay. Um, we were non-participating. Yep. The only difference now over the years is that um, we are in network with some insurances. Gotcha. Um, uh, you are we, all in? Always taken medical insurance. Um, mm -hmm. We did for a very short amount of time, try doing our own billing. It was not worth it. Um, and we have always used a medical billing company yeah. with, with the exception of that very short window of time. And it, it did not work. Yeah. Yeah. We, so our, we have a, a little bit wider span of clients. Some folks that are just starting out that are comfortable on mm -hmm. the fee for service kind of hybrid billing as a courtesy side. Uh, okay. you all, if you, if you guys are there, you can start there. Don't, some people are going to say, no, the folks that are referred in to Dr. Unju's office, uh, they're referred in from a physician. Those folks are expecting to have medical coverage. No different than when your yes. internal medicine doctor refers you to the ENT, you expect them to take your medical card. Yeah. It's the same expectation for medical. But if you're just starting out screening and that's your major hurdle, 
like what she said, there, there's tools, there's people, there's great companies out there that will help you with that. Yeah. So I mean, and, and yet we had to start somewhere too, right? So we started with screening. Right. I remember being happy when I had, you know, three or four consults in that month. I was happy. Now we have four or five consults a day, you know, so yeah. it's, it's just grown over yeah. time. Um, but yeah. you do have to start somewhere. So that is, uh, perfectly connects to James's question. He said, is the medical community getting more accepting uh, to the dentist screening and treating OSA or? I would say yes. I would say, especially in light of, I'm not sure if you know, but there was a huge CPAP recall um, over the last year. And, um, you know, they can't get CPAPs for their patients. So they need to get treatment for these patients too. So they're very open to working with you. Yes. Got it. So on the same topic, but somebody else, Dr. Silverstone, um, some of the patients, he said, some of my patients have discussed my finding with their local MD. A few have been told that the MD can't see how the dentist can tell this. How would you handle that? What would be the finding that Dr. Silverstone is is referring to? Uh, Like they've, they've had a test come in or the patient was a candidate for an appliance um, based on that test. And the patient says, I want to go get a second opinion. And they go back to their primary doctor. Well, but who did the study is my question. Oh, I don't know. He didn't, he didn't have that context. Yeah. Um, so so let, let's I put it. That, I, I, and I think that goes to why I highly think that, uh, the study should always come from the physician and not from the dentist. Yeah. I mean, so I that, can order studies. I can order studies in Michigan, but I, I don't, you know, some, some states you can't, um, in Michigan you can, um, but I just think it kind of, it doesn't create the rapport that you want with that sleep position. Yeah. So how did, how do you, um, if you refer out, I think his question was in context. If you refer out for your findings, your screening yes. you're positive, you refer out to an MD for the testing yes. and that MD, those patients go back to their internal medicine doctor who says, What's your dentist talking about? That's well, the then I think that that's when you should probably pick up the phone or sit, make a face-to-face meeting, sit down with the, some of the PCPs because if they don't, you know, you have to look at it. Like, you know, when a, a physician goes to medical school, they get maybe a day in the world of sleep, you know, they don't have all that training. Um, so the, and if they don't even understand that there is a, a whole field of medicine called dental sleep medicine, then it, maybe it's, it's our place to help educate them. Got it. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I know some of the, even some of the um, oral appliance companies right now, some of their initiatives this year are to reach out to the physicians mm -hmm. and try and, you know, educate physicians on oral appliance therapy, because that's how we're going to, you know, start even screening more people because the patient is with their PCP more than they are with their specialists. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, what do you tell medical offices uh, when they, oh, we got the cost one covered already. Sorry. Um, I've heard of offices using uh, pulse oximetry. What would be the benefit of doing this chair side? How would the pulse ox give us insight as a predictor of OSA? Um, well, 